Today we have Yomesh Deliwala on the show. Do you want to become a successful real estate investor? Join Yomesh as he dives deep into the world of value-add real estate and how it can help you build massive wealth. Discover the risk-adjusted returns of various real estate-related asset classes and gain knowledge on how to find an ideal business partner. Learn his strategies for operations that enable a what-we-can-do or what-is-our-potential mentality. Listen and learn. So here's a question for you. What's your why? It could be to find financial freedom. It could be to add new streams of income. It could be to save taxes. You may want to become an active investor or you may want to invest passively. Either way, you need to make a decision and then take action. Your first action can be to educate yourself. Go to join.darrenbatchelder.com, sign up and start your journey. Now, on to the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Yomesh before we start the show. Yomesh lives and invests in the Charlotte MSA. He's been investing in real estate for the past 15 years, but just recently left his W-2 to become a full-time real estate investor. His background is in technology with a large management consulting firm. His role in the real estate business is to focus on the operations. He is continually learning and using that learning to help his company's investors gain access to various real estate-related asset classes. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Yomesh Deliwala. Yomesh, appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Darren. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, just a little bit on how we know each other, and then we'll get into it. So um, I actually just did a deal with with Yomesh and his partner, Hemel Badiani. Um, Hemel was on the show back on episode 115. And um, it was a nice, nice little property um, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, 98-unit townhome deal, uh, built in 2022. Um, so we're buying it from the developer. And um, so interested to hear and have him share, you know, we had Hemel on and want to hear his role and um, how he can help listeners understand the different facets of going into a multifamily deal. So with that, Yomesh, can you share with the listeners maybe a little bit about your background and kind of how you got involved with multifamily? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, again, thanks again for having me over here, Darren. Excited to be here and add some value to your listeners. Absolutely. Um, I have been in um, real estate for, I would say, over 15 years. Uh, fascinating story out there where I... Uh, Obviously, started as a passive investor, like many of the listeners uh, out there as well. Uh, apparently, I was living in an apartment while I invested in a passive real estate. So that was a that was one nugget that I, uh, you know, I try to look back in the history and I'm trying to find that out. That yes, I I was living in an apartment. I did invest in a townhome, or I invested in a townhome to start the passive income. So I was very um, you know, forward thinking in terms of getting my passive income to a point where it would replace my active income. And that's where the journey started uh, about 15 years ago, right? So that's where uh, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, um, have been on and off um, investing in the Charlotte market, in and around Charlotte market. Charlotte market has grown a significant growth uh, over the last 15 years. And unfortunately, I was able to take advantage of some of that in the areas that were more popular from a job growth perspective, uh, population coming in perspective. So 
built myself a good portfolio of rental properties, right? Uh, townhomes, single family in and around Charlotte area. Um, up until 2016, right? So that's where starting from 20, 2006 all the way to 2016 is when I uh, picked up a few units, townhomes, single family, all of that, built a nice portfolio out of it. And then from 16 onwards, the numbers stopped making sense in terms of where the market was going and and uh, anything that you can buy versus rent it out. And then the numbers, the, the cash on cash, uh, the cash flow that you would get towards the end, it started uh, in the opposite direction. So that's that's when I paused. So that's between 16 and 19, I was just evaluating the market. And then 19 is when uh, uh, obviously Hemel and I know each other for a very really long time, right? So How do you guys know each other from? from uh, we're, we're, we have, we're common friends um, and uh, we have some common friends across uh, Charlotte area as well, within the US, back home in India as well. Right. So we, we kind of had uh, met over a few events. Um, Hamel went to the uh, to the local university as well, where a few of my friends were also going. So we we met through common friends and then uh, uh, clearly struck a chord over there from a friendship standpoint. So I think we go back as long as uh, my time here in Charlotte, which is about 18 years. Oh, wow. So we awesome. go back. Never had an opportunity to work together, obviously. Um, um, and then, you know, as a friend, I would always recommend based on my uh, uh, background on real estate, what I would do was I would pick up those townhomes and single family. I would work directly with the developer. So these are all brand new townhomes that were coming up in the in the Charlotte area. And what I would go in and say, you know, struck, strike a deal there to take up all investor uh, based units, meaning if uh, in in, our, in Charlotte there was a, a typically builder by builder, what they do is 50% residential, 50% investment. Yes. And what they would do is they will, I will block all the investor units. And then, um, you know, whatever I can consume, I would consume. And then I would open it up for, for some of my closest friends. So Hamel was one of them. So he and I have uh, a few units uh, up in North Charlotte where, um, you know, we bought individually, of course, but we bought it directly through the builder. So that's where we kind of uh, worked our way into, um, you know, me recommending him some deals. And then in 19 is when, a uh, few of us were meeting over drinks and Hamel is like, hey, let's uh, let me let me tell you guys about multifamily. And, um, you know, this was this was back in 19. Everybody was over a glass of scotch. We were all talking through and Hamel walked us through on a piece of cardboard and we were just riding through brainstorming and uh, a mini mastermind. You can call sure. it out. But um, uh, I saw right through it and, you know, I saw the value. I was working through the numbers all along and and I saw the value that was coming out of from a multifamily standpoint. So right after that meeting, um, Hemel and I talked and I'm like, hey, what do we do next? Right. And where? how can we get started? So from that point onwards to today, um, we have our brand. We have our team. We have our several lines of businesses. Uh, putting putting all the work that we have been doing for over two decades into consulting, right, and doing work for everybody else. We're just bringing it in-house, doing it for our, for our own selves, for our own team, for our own projects. That's fantastic. That's a great story. So I didn't realize that you guys had that that long history together. So, I mean, I hear that over and over and over again from people about, you know, getting into partnerships, you know, really know your partners and the fact that you guys have an 18 year relationship, you know, says a lot that you guys, you know, came together. Um, the other thing that you said was, which I love was forward thinking. You were forward thinking you were living in, you were actually living in an apartment when you did your first passive deal. Um, you know, talk about that because I think I don't see many people that are in that kind of mindset. I, I think of people, you know, I see the passive investors that get involved in deals that I'm involved in. And they're typically people that have the, you know, excess capital. They're, they're doing well in another industry and mm -hmm. they kind of siphon off the money. They don't want to put all their money in the stock market. And mm -hmm. so they want to diversify. Um, but you were forward thinking and you saw that, you know, both passive investments and rental properties were where it was 
where it was at. So kind of share your mindset that you kind of went down that path. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, this is, um, uh, the whole intent behind that was to create a stream of income that would at some point surpass my active nine to five. And I would be able to comfortably um, retire, so to say, on, on this passive income, right? So, I, and I'm sure all the listeners out there also have the same uh, intention, right? But, you know, intention and action are two different things, right? So right. Then, I was going to say, wanna, every, everybody wants that passive income to, to be more than their daily lifestyle. But, you know, people keep buying stuff and, you know, that lifestyle creeps up. So, um, but yeah, you know, exactly. You sacrificed exactly. early so that you could, you know, enjoy the rewards later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's where, you know, it, it um, uh, it kind of helped out as well if you are in a growing market, right? I mean, if you are, so for example, Charlotte here uh, 16 years ago was a different uh, place altogether, right? Sure. So having that insight, staying local, um, I, I took that leap of faith, right? So, you know, in addition to all the stock market purchases and diversified portfolio, uh, having passive income through rent, rental real estate was also one of the areas I was exploring. And then um, the way it happened was um, there was a lot of development happening in the area. And that's where I kind of entered into one of the development and then picked up one unit. One became three, three became five, five became 10 over the period of years. So that's where, you know, it helped me kind of build my portfolio locally as well. Yeah. The other things that like, I got a number of questions that come out of your, your background, but the first, let's let's kind of divide up. Like, what's your role versus Hemel's role within the company? And also, you mentioned you were, you know, you're building a brand. Like, you know, share with the listeners what that the name of the company is and the brand. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things, and you know, this is not my first rodeo from a partnership standpoint, right? So I have had several other small businesses that I used to own, right? And I had my share of experience from a partnership standpoint. So number one thing, and as, as the listeners also look for some of the partners that they would venture out uh, from a multifamily or, or commercial real estate standpoint, one of the things that I typically looked out and, uh, and Hemel would agree is complementary skills. Right. So Hamill and I possess complementary skills. When I say that, what does that mean? Right. So he's more from a uh, investment standpoint. He has an extensive background from banking, financials, all of that. So he handles most of our uh, loan conversations, debt conversations, uh, investor conversations. So he's more facing towards investors handling those conversations. Whereas my forte has been uh, from a property management, operations, numbers, that perspective, right? So I handle most of the operations. So that's how our roles are divided. He's more towards on the investment, uh, debt, uh, and I handle most of the operations. So if you talk about anything from our property standpoint, that's the portfolio I would manage. And we kind of have a, obviously we both uh, uh, are closely working together, right? Sure. So we, I, I know exactly what's happening on his area. He knows exactly what's happening on my area. But when it comes to a responsibility, right? So uh, a neck to choke or uh, a responsible, you know, a decision maker, which is very important, right? So that's where he and I separate our duties where we say, hey, if there is an operational related decision, my word is final. If there is a debt related conversation, he doesn't have, we both of us doesn't need to be on the same call and talk about it, right? right. He can make, make the decisions, he can make the calls, he can make the uh, negotiations. I can do the same based on my realm of, uh, realm of activities, right? So that's how our roles are different. Um, and be, each of us come from a different, you know, for, we actually work for the same company. We, we work for Accenture. Oh, you did? Uh, for okay. the most part, from a consulting standpoint. Never worked together on a project, but Hemo uh, was more on the management consulting side. I was more on the technology services and technology consulting side. Gotcha. We And, you know, uh, we had our share of uh, negotiations, our share of conversations with C-suite level people, right? And and dealing with that conversations. So that was a niche skill that brought, both of us brought to the table, right? So uh, having the right relationships, 
having the right um, uh, you know terms brought out in whether you are negotiating a debt, whether you are negotiating a property management agreement. That's the so that's how we kind of tag team each other, have our own specialities. But the the core theme, underlying core theme, is complementary skills. Yeah. Right. So that's 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 what we brought to the table, and that struck the struck the chord right from the beginning. Is where we had a clear understanding of we're not stepping on each other's tone uh, toes in terms of. Uh, the responsibilities. We're not duplicating the work. Right. We are utilizing our complementary skills to achieve success in each of those areas. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. Um, the other piece that I want to talk about, which you know, talked about your, hearing your story, it, it makes sense now. Like when you think of value add multifamily, right? Value add. Most people will consider value add to be all right. You're going to buy a property. You're going to rehab the interior units. You're going to paint the exterior. You're going to make it nicer. And then you're going to raise rents. And, you know, but what I've seen in the deal that we're involved in together, that there's also other types of value-add opportunities where, where like the deal that we bought in South Carolina, that was a new development deal, brand new. But the developer has a different MO. The developer is looking to and buy the land, get it entitled, build the property, lease it up, but they don't care if they're at market rents. So they just want to lease it up and sell it. So, you know, that was, an, that was a value-add opportunity, but it was a different type of value-add opportunity. It was a value-add opportunity where there's not as much maintenance that you have to put into it. And then you, over a period of time, you, over several years, you're going to raise rents. So share kind of with the listeners, you know, your view point on different sets of value add. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously the deal that we are involved in, um, that's a 2022 build, like you mentioned, right? So the the intention from the builder was to lease it up as fast as possible. So there were several concessions that they made in the beginning when they launched the property, like any other developer would, right? So they what they want to do is they want to speed up the lease up. Sure. And they would uh, take take these routes where they would put a concession in place, a discounted rents or a free free leases and stuff like that, right? So that's where uh, when we step in um, and from a developer standpoint, uh, like you mentioned, um, what they are uh, concerned or what they have a short term goal is to fill the property up so that show, they can show the right NOI and then put it in the market and move on to their next property. Right. right? So they are not in the business of uh, asset management, uh, asset managing the property over a period of a five year business plan. Right. right. So they're not in the business of that uh, they want to move on. They want to fill it up, move on to the next one. Um, and when we come in in an asset like this, we we come in. We, you know, the number one thing that we do is market uh, study, right? So that's where you find out that there's a potential for the rent growth, right? In addition to the property being brand new, there are several things that can be brought to the property, which would then enhance the value of the property further, right? Whether it is, you know, some ancillary services that you bring from a valet trash or a pet services or you know. Um, uh, provide them with uh, the fence, you know, privacy fences, you know, make improvements within the property. Uh, you you do that, all of that as part of your um, business plan. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the number one thing that, uh, you know, when you buy directly from the builder, uh, you want to keep in mind is the renewal side of it, right? So since they have filled in the property with a discounted rent, the number one challenge that would come up is, hey, now that you're stepping in and you're bringing in that renewals in place and and uh, kind of go back to the same tenants and tell them that, hey, what you rented out in 1200 is actually now 15. So would you like to continue? And if not, then, you know, the, these are the terms that we have set in stone. So a little bit of creative. And, and by the time that we acquired that property and by the time we are in, markets are shifting. Right. So we have, we got to be cognizant of having a performer number to hit versus uh, maintaining that right balance sure. of occupancy 
versus pro forma numbers versus delinquency versus so that's a, there's a whole lot of things that go into place where you know depending on the type of the asset that you have that you need to maintain that fine balance you don't want everybody to to uh, you know mass exodus of the tenants right. but at the same time you need to maintain the right balance absolutely so the other thing that was interesting was when you talked about even what you were doing like on a much smaller scale but you were going into developers and you know, the developer maybe was doing 50% residential and 50% investor properties. You were blocking out that investor piece. That's kind of similar to, you know, what you're doing, you know, with buying a new property from the developer. Um, So, you know, I don't know if you already had a relationship with this builder, but having that experience, I would imagine it helped in, you know, creating the relationship and, and, um, you know, assisting and winning the, the deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what, what what we need to make sure is the track record, right? So what what any seller, uh, you know, including us, we would we would like to know is what kind of track record the team has, right? Whoever is coming in from a buying perspective. And we being developers by ourselves by ourselves as well, right? I mean that adds to our uh, uh, advantage to talk in the terms of the developer, right? So that's where we were able to negotiate with them. We were able to get in a good faith. We were able to get in an early engagement with them. We were able to meet the team. We were able to see the property. So uh, it, it sets us apart uh, when you are talking in their own language and working with them in a way that, uh, you know, it becomes a win-win situation from both the parties. So maybe explain that, like, uh, because, you know, most of the syndicators that I've I've had come on the show are kind of focused on value-add multifamily and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And, and you guys are in a number of different asset classes. So maybe talk about, you know, you know, what falls under your brand and, you know, what is your focus? Absolutely. No. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I I missed out on that one. But uh, exponential equity is our brand. Right. And uh, we're we're actually going through rebranding it uh, in in the next 15 days. I think we're we're uh, uh, finalizing our launch calendar, but we are relaunching as Sage Equity. Um, so that's uh, that rebranding is in the process right now. But in exponential, we're essentially looking at um, uh, three lines of businesses, right? And one of them, like I said, the value add uh, multifamily, uh, which is what we talked about. We have about a thousand units across eight properties um, that we're managing, uh, predominantly in the North and South Carolinas. There are a couple of properties. One in Louisiana, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but that we purchased during the COVID times. But that's predominantly we, you know, from that point onwards, we are focusing very much in our backyard, which is the North and South Carolinas, and we've been pretty successful in in finding deals and able to uh, work our business plan so far. So that's on the value add side. Uh, the second line of business is uh, we have new development, right? So we're uh, new development is highly focused and highly local. Right. So all of our projects, we have about four of them uh, that are in the Charlotte um, MSA, in and around Charlotte MSA. So about a, uh, our philosophy is that we we keep Charlotte at, at the center and draw a three hour uh, radius around it. And anything is fair game in that three hour radius. And uh, for specifically for new development, um, about four projects which are in the uh, thirty to forty-five minute driving distance on that on from a Charlotte. What type of new development is it? Is it multifamily new development? Is it you know other asset yeah. classes? What what falls? Yeah, so we have area? one um, one uh, climate control storage facility that we're building in uh, mm-hmm. Gastonia, North Carolina. Uh, we're we're almost about. 80% there on that, and uh, we're scheduled to uh, to put it under operation mostly first week of May. Okay. So we're, we're scheduled for an opening uh, on the, uh, May 2023. So that's a 100% climate control facility. Uh, the second one uh, that we're building is 144 garden-style apartments. So this is close to the airport. Uh, we uh, We are in active construction phase for that one. 
uh, and that's scheduled for closure uh, in about 15 months from now. So sometime uh, in the Q1, Q2 timeframe of 2024. Okay. The third one is uh, uh, it's a uh, luxury townhomes that we're building about seven minutes away from Charlotte Uptown. So that's a, um, you know, that's a four story rooftop terrace, uh, very much in line with what's in demand in Charlotte market. And we're, we're uh, catering to that demand in the up and coming area of West Boulevard. So that's, that's the third one. We're in active permitting for a built to rent community that we are developing. It's 105 single family homes that we're developing um, in Gastonia as well. So that's, uh, those are the four projects that we have active, uh, actively going on. So you have value add, you've got new development, you've got four uh, different deals under the new development. And was there another component? There is a third line of business, which is land development, right? So land development is where we acquire raw land and we take it through the entire rezoning, permitting and entitlement process, right? So um, we do that and, uh, you know, that's that's where we have about five pieces of land that we are actively working on and it's in a various phases of entitlement, but that's the third line of business. So if you were to break down the company uh, focus-wise, how does it split between those three? What's the, say, percentage that um, I think um, our uh, money, focus? So from an effort perspective, um, yeah, I mean, I would, we're pretty much working all day, 24 hours, I would say. But all th- but, uh, evenly amongst those three categories? Uh, we, we've set ourselves objectives in terms of what we want to achieve, right? So, for example, land development, uh, we want to be, uh, you know, 2,000 lots in the next three years, right? So that's our, that's our goal. When we say lots, as in when we take the land under entitlement and we, um, you know, uh, we go through the the plotting of the land. We kind of identify how many sites can be built on top of it, right? Whether it is a single family or townhomes or multifamily, right? And then, so we have a target of about 2,000 lots okay. within the next three years, right? So that's our target. So we we march towards, the, towards that target. Um, on the development side, um, I think for the for this particular year, we're we're good with that, those four projects. We want to make sure that we we see them through, um, and um, a value add perspective. You know, given the market, we're not we're not really uh, looking to explore any further until Q2 or you know end of Q2 Q3 timeframe, right? Until the market, uh, the interest rate situation, we have a better uh, understanding of the interest rate. So as far as the effort is concerned. I would say that uh, most of my effort goes on the value add side. There's uh, a lot of moving pieces in there that my effort goes into. Um, uh, I would say about uh, so I would say about forty percent of effort goes over there. Okay. The remaining, uh, you know, thirty and thirty, I would say, um, goes into the new development side, and the land development is is probably twenty percent with another 20% going in towards the fourth line of business that we recently are venturing into, right? And uh, we just uh, kind of ventured into that. I don't know if Hemel mentioned on his side or not. I don't think so. But um, there's an investment-based uh, visa category uh, that is called EB-5. E-D? Uh, e, e as in uh, Edward, B as in boy. Okay, so E-B, EB number five. So EB-5. It's basically uh, a job creation mechanism. So you have an uh, ultra high net worth individual who would invest, who is a foreign investor, basically. They would invest uh, to create jobs within the United States and that would entail them to a a, a permanent residential within the country. So that's called EB-5. So there there is a concept of a regional center uh, that basically acts as a fund in order to manage those funds and put them into the projects, various projects within the country. So we recently purchased a regional center um, that would be um, that we would be deploying for our own self or our own projects. But this is this was a niche that we identified that was not present in the current market. Sure. So we 
we purchase that regional center. And our goal is that we bring the foreign capital across the world and then invest that, potentially invest that in our own projects. That way we have a full transparency uh, in the process where the investors, whether domestic or international, uh, they know where their funds are and how they are being used, utilized in our own projects. They get regular updates on the projects, so on and so forth. So that was something that we thought was missing and we're, we're gonna plug that gap by, uh, by venturing into that business. That's awesome. So these are very different kind of business lines. Um, talk about, do you bring investors into the deal in each of these categories? And if you do, you know, maybe you can share, you know, what is the difference between, you know, a value add passive investor versus a new development passive investor versus, you know, land development versus this new EB5? Um, yeah. You know, what are the return profile differences? And then what's kind of the mindset of the, the, the passive investor? Yeah, that's a great question, Darren. Um, the primary difference is the risk appetite, right, from the investor standpoint. So value-add multifamily, uh, you can touch and feel the asset. You see the numbers, you see the performance. There is a past performance that you can rely on. There are market conditions that you can rely on. Right. And you know how the asset is performing based on the financials that you can watch. You know, the returns are you know, typically factored around six, seven, eight pref returns. All of our deals are structured that way. And, uh, you know, uh, keeping in mind on certain reserves and all of that, we guarantee those returns. There is a fixed business plan in there. Right. You know, three year business plan, five year. We do refinance. We do repositioning of the asset. We do refinance or sell it. Right. So there is a defined path for value add, right? So sure. if, if, I, if I'm a passive investor and I, I look at a passive, uh, if I look at a value add deal, I would look at, you know, what's the exit strategy? How are they covering for, you know, the DSCR, you know, all of that good stuff. And I will, I'll, my mind will be at ease and I'll be like, yeah, this makes sense. They are giving me a, a return. A promise return also looks good. Let me put my money in there, right? And that's that's something that you're investing based on the numbers that you see and the, the business plan that is plotted. On a new development, you're um, it, it turning away from a cash flow play to a more equity play, right? So you don't you don't see any money coming in, right? So you, you're not looking at any kind of pref returns, right? This is mainly towards equity play as to you park your money and you wait for at least two years three years, right? So there are, that's a different class of investors where, and we, we get these investors every day and night, right? Where they would so come in and say, I don't care that, about cash. Right. Let's talk about that on the new development compared to the value add. Do you see that what, like, I'm just thinking out, out loud here that I would think that if you're looking at the equity play and if you're looking at parking capital, that maybe you're getting one investors that are a bit more seasoned, you know, they've, exactly. they've already, you know, done passive deals. They understand that. Um, and then two, they're maybe putting more capital. So instead of, you know, 50, 75, hundred grand, they maybe are putting in 250 or 500,000 or a million into a deal. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we were seeing uh, that trend and, uh, you know, most of the, along with that trend, we're also seeing a trend where some of our value-add investors are getting driven into new development. Because now, you know, the concept of, you know, for us developing these these type of deals, right? You know, what, what we are trying to do is we're providing diversification within the commercial real estate class, right? right? So we're, we're saying, hey, what is your risk appetite, right? Are you, are you, a, you know, are you more interested towards cash flow? Then we have the value add deal. Are you looking into park your capital and not to worry about it and wait for a decent return two years, three years, four years down the lane once the construction is complete? Right, because there are a lot of moving pieces from a new development standpoint. The permitting could work in you know six months; it could work in eighteen months. So there's a lot of unknowns in that area. So that's that's another piece of thing. And then the third, which is uh, from a land standpoint, right? That's the most riskiest, right? Which is where 
you uh, were, were essentially taking over land and going through rezoning, doing all kinds of studies on the land. So we, right on the get-go, we don't know what that land entails, right? Whether you're going to find some issue with the land, some topography issues, some geotech issue, we don't know all of that. So that you're, the, the, the risk associated with the capital being invested increases, uh, you know, uh, significantly when you go from a value add to a new development to a a land development, right? Because right. land, you know, if, if for whatever reason land land without the land. without not shovel ready land, land that doesn't have the entitlements, and so there's a lot of risk in that process. There is a lot of risk. Yes, once you perform all the studies, you know, we have at least walked out of uh, at least four deals where we performed the studies and it was all sunk cost. Because when we looked at, you know, all the studies, there's no point in moving forward beyond that, right? So there's, you know, that's the the, the highest level of risk that we can take with investors. So, you know, when you're talking about risk-adjusted returns, I'm, I'm also assuming that, the, so in the typical value-add play, I mean, I've seen a million different deals come across my desk and most deals are double your money in five years. You know, it could be a little bit less, could be a little bit more, but let's just say double your money in five years for value add play. The new development and then land development, if you're taking on additional risk, I'm assuming that the return profile is higher as well. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we're what is the kind of projected returns for development versus, you know, land? Yeah, so 2x is typical for new development, but in a shorter time frame, right? Depending okay. on what you're building. So instead right? so of five, five years, years it may be two or three years? Two or three years, absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. And land is uh, more in terms of between five and 10x, but with, uh, with a lot of risk attached to it, right? So you, we got to let go of, uh, uh, you know, got to be ready to, to let go of that capital, right? But, you know, more higher the risk, higher the rewards as well, right? So sure. that's, that's yeah. Um, I, I would think, let's see, if I mean, if you've done, if you do this, I'm just, again, I'm talking out loud, but if you do the studies on the land deals, I would think the, the bigger risk is just the timing getting extended, you know? So you think that it's going to be, path of progress is going to move over there into in five years, but it ends up being seven or 10. Is that correct? Or is there a lot of risk that you actually lose everything? Yeah. So it depends on what, that's why it is highly local, right? So our, our, all of our land deals are where we can put our eyes on, where we have some credible, intelligent data that we can rely on. Right, and that's where our team come into play. Right, so um, our, our director of land development, uh, uh, new development and land entitlement is Brandon Maxwell. He's he's one of our team members, and then we have two veterans on our team who are in their past life uh, utility directors and uh, county directors and all. Right, so that we we bring that knowledge back to the team, and. Uh, as far as, you know, when we, we all sit together, that's where we, whenever Brandon and his team brings a piece of land, that, those are some of the questions that we ask. Hey, how is this uh, in, the, in the path of progress, right? How, what are we looking at, right? And that's where we have identified some core uh, markets, uh, core counties in which we develop or in which we go out and seek uh, for acquisition, right? And that's a very niche and you know brand and i would give it to 100 to him he's a he's a magician in that one <laughs> and right before you know we, we jumped on a call he uh kind of we got ourselves into another piece of land about 20 acres uh in um in the bessemer city gastonia area but that's a that's a very up and coming area so it requires a lot of effort goes without saying but uh you know looking through uh, one of the factors is is like you said is the path of progress the second one is essentially availability of a a lot of different things right one of course land needs to be the way it needs to be for anybody to come in and and build on top of it and that the only way we would know that is through the studies that we would perform, right? And these are all upfront costs, right? So we're talking about 
hundreds, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of worth of study that needs to be performed, right? And that's a risk capital that we put from our own pocket, right? And, and uh, kind of um, evolve that project forward. But the second thing is to have uh, a really, um, uh, an, uh, a pulse on the area to understand what, whether there are any kind of issues pertaining to utilities, pertaining to any kind of development that's happening in the area. And that's where the local team, local knowledge, uh, experience comes into play, right? So there, I would, uh, you know, in the vicinity of where I'm sitting right now, in, in the radius of five miles, you would probably find 40 track of land, amazingly prime land. But when you just go out and start negotiating, you would find out there are utility issues. There's no utility coming to the market, uh, to, the, to the land out there. And what that means is you have to wait, uh, you know, if it is a capacity issue at the county level or city level or whatever, you have, we're, we're looking at waiting at about seven, eight years until that opens up. And that's very prevalent within the, within the market. So that's, that, those are some of the things that you would typically go in and consider. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, so when you, let's go back to value add multifamily and, um, if you're talking to new passive investors, what is what do you see as the biggest risk in getting involved in value add deals? Um, it actually goes without saying market is the number one, right? So market where you invest in is is the number one uh, criteria, right? You, and there are several statistics available to to validate. Uh, what you're doing, right? And it could be as simple as, you know, making uh, making calls around in the property, looking at the news, looking at the census. You know, there are several data points that are available. So, but market remains the number one uh, criteria for passive investor. If I'm a passive investor, that's the first thing I would look at, right? Second is uh, uh, the track record of the of the sponsor team, the GP team, you know, everybody who's involved from a management standpoint, right? So what, what is the track record of that team? Um, that's the second. And then, you know, weathering the storm. How are they weathering this storm? Currently, there is a storm going on, right? With a increased interest rate. We're talking about cap rate insurances. We're talking about cash reserves, uh, the lender reserves, they will have, we have distribution reserves, all kinds of stuff is happening in the market. So uh, asking those questions in terms of how the team is planning to weather the storm in the next 24 to 36 months, right? Which is where, uh, and it's cyclical, right? Everybody understands that it's a, it's a cycle that we're working through. So right now, if things are, uh, you'll get different opinions from different operators. It's a good time to buy, or it is not a good time to buy. But then, you know, there's, or a good time is coming to buy, right? right. And, but you, you get that. And then, uh, so I would say those are the top three factors, market, the track record, and then yeah. you know, how it, are it, That really matches up very well with what I, what I tell people if they're looking to get in. I say, you know, you first mo look at the markets. Like I'm, I'm, when I talk about the markets, you're focused on North and South Carolina and around the Charlotte area. So you're very hyper-focused in, in your local area. Um, I'm focused on high growth markets. So like Arizona, Texas, the Carolinas, Atlanta, Florida, Tennessee, you like population growth, income growth, job growth, all of that, you know, is, you know, wind at your back. And so, you know, you want to, you want to try to be in those markets where, you know, there's wind at your back. And then secondly is, is the, the people, the people that are running the deal, do they have a good track record? You know, um, do you know them? Do you like them? Do you trust them? One of the things I was thinking about with the, the way you guys have set up your, your business with these three or four different categories is that, you know, you could bring in a passive investor, have them get into one or two of your deals on the value add side, which they learn, they get comfortable with it. And then they say, hey, look, I've got additional capital and I want to kind of go up the risk profile and you have another option. And so they already have the checkbox on the market and the people. 
they're just having, now they're just having to make a leap from one asset class to another, you know? So that's very strategic on your guys' part. Absolutely. And that's, that's the intention as we want to create a one-stop shop, so to say, right. Where, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, for any, any new investor that we bring in as well, we we're very cognizant of, providing them options as well, depending on their risk appetite. So it's very important to learn what their objective is, right? So whether you're coming in from a cash flow perspective, whether you're coming in from an equity uh, position perspective, you know, and, you know, most of the investors that I talk to, I always tell them, hey, why don't you start with a minimum investment? You know, that way you get an exposure to how we do how we do our work. You know, you get exposure to the deal, you get exposure to the team. And then once you're comfortable and Nine times out of 10, all of those investors are repeat investors for us. And they have come in with multiple fold of money in our next deal and next deal and next deal. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's huge is the referrals and, and um, the rolling of capital from one deal to another. So talk about some learning lessons, like some learning lessons. So on the show, like the listeners are comprised of, uh, you know, passive investors, people that are looking to passively invest for the first time, and also a lot of syndicators that are looking to scale. So they're looking to learn from other syndicators. So, you know, talk about some lessons learned both from a, you know, operator standpoint and also from an, you know, passive investor standpoint. Yeah, I mean, um, there are... There are several uh, lessons learned, right? And well, then, you never stop learning, right? Never stop learning. <laughs> never stop sure. learning. But, that is for sure. You know, but each deal, like, you know, some deals go, you know, the straight line up, but a lot of deals, they don't. They, they go, you know, go up and then they go, they have a dip, they have a challenge, you got to solve that challenge and then it goes back up, you know, so talk about some of those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the one of the things that I would start with is, uh, you know, the operations uh, will make or break the deal. Right. So, you know, asset management operations is the key where the money is made. Right. So we we can talk about acquisitions. We can talk about capital raise. We can talk about all all kinds of stuff that happens before you close the asset. But once you close the asset, your key focus needs to be operations. How is um, how are you making the money? How is that money used? And how is that being optimized to a level where you are hitting um, the pro forma numbers are not just from a pro forma numbers perspective, right? The, the objective is that you have a, a systematic plan to approach those numbers. And you basically are shifting your plan as you go based on the market conditions, right? Um, what you underwrote uh, on an ideal world perspective that I'm going to renovate 50% of the property in the next six months. That should not, that once you go in, that may not be possible. You would find, uh, you know, labor challenges, material challenges, eviction challenges, you know, things not moving as <laughs> smoothly as you wanted. So be cognizant of that. So that's, that's the number one learning lesson is, you know, operations makes or breaks, right? And then when you are in the operations and when you have the business plan, be ready to make changes to that business plan to adapt to the on-ground situations, right? The on-ground situations could be completely opposite to what you had underwritten with, right? Right. And, and that brings a variety of challenges. And when you are faced with challenges, always remember with every property that you, that that we close or that anybody would close, there would be challenges. The important piece to remember is how do you adapt to those challenges and make changes in order to march towards that end goal, right? That, that's, that's so important. And I had another syndicator on and he gave an example of, you know, being out in a tertiary market and the business plan was to upgrade the units to a certain level. And after they did they realized that people weren't willing to pay up for that. So they had to pivot. And then their upgrade schedule was, you know, they weren't spending as much money per unit. They weren't getting the rent bump that they had, had put, but the, you know, the return was still there. If they, if they just went forward and just renovated all the units to the level that they had in their original business plan, they never would have met their targets because they would have been spending way too much money for the additional 
rent they were getting. Absolutely. No, this is another deal that we had in uh, Gaffney. We faced with the similar situation. So we had budgeted, you know, between five and seven grand for each of those units. But then when we walked into those units and when we saw what's out there versus the tenant profile, right, uh, for some of those newer tenants that we got in, uh, we were fine spending 2000 bucks on the unit for a turn. Right. So, you know, no need for a granite countertop if it's if, if whatever is in there, it's working. Right. And uh, I mean, I would say about seven times out of 10, we have adjusted our plans where, you know, you got to go in. Um, so renovations or turning the units is one of the aspects. The other aspect is is renewals. Right. Uh, renewals. When you go in, you underwrite saying that I'm going to have these 50 percent of the tenants who are renewing in the next six months. I'm going to bump up the rents by 400 bucks. Well, that's not practical, right? I mean, not practical as in, I would say gone are those days, right? You know, there was a possibility when market was was booming all across and, and it is also uh, true for certain cities, uh, still true for certain cities. But if you see a general trend of, of things going down, what you have to do is you have to pivot and say, hey, if I'm not able to get a 400 bump, uh, can I work with a 250, right? And so two things you're doing. One is you're still getting a bump. And number two is you're not spending a single dime on that unit. Right. The tenant stays in there and still gives you a 250 versus a 400. So obviously you have not hit your numbers, but you it's, uh, you know, some number is obviously greater than zero. Right. Yeah, so you're not. You didn't have to make the capital turn on that. Exactly. So. Exactly. So in the long run, it, it kind of adds, uh, adds up to it. Absolutely. So. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? I do crazy things, Darren. All right, I, I let me hear you. Had, uh, what, cr- what's crazy to you? Crazy is uh, I, do, um, I do triathlon. Awesome. I don't know if we talked about it or not. So, but I, I have done, um, I've done Ironman, if you've well, heard like, of them. Have you really? Yeah. So ex- I, d- define what an Ironman is because that's, it's, it sounds like it's, it's a bear. It's a um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a form of triathlon, much branded, right, and and got a lot of popularity, and it's very well organized. It's a brand, actually. Ironman is a brand, and uh, they organize races across. But it's a combination of swim, bike, and run, right. So typically, the swim is is out in the open water somewhere, right, and it's uh, uh, followed by the bike and followed by the run, right. So but depending is it, on is the run like a, a full marathon. Depends on the the uh, Ironman you run. So if it is a full Ironman, right, it is 140.6. It's what it's called, right? What that means is it is a 2.6-mile swim. Um, it is 112 miles of biking and a full marathon wow. after that. So and, uh, now, and a half Ironman is a half of that. I haven't done... The most I've done is I, I did the, whatever, the Tough mutter That was like 10 miles. Um, but when I think of this, I think of not just the physical aspect, but the mental aspect of finishing one of these races, especially the first time doing it because you don't know, you know, that you can do it, is extreme, got to be extremely challenging. Yeah, I would say that, yeah. I mean, this was... Uh in 2019 is when I first ran the, the first race, right? This was out of the whim, you know, talking to a friend, this was my milestone year. And I'm like, oh, let, let me do something crazy out there on this milestone year. I called a friend of mine and he's like, uh, uh, he did a few marathons, full marathons. So I thought, let, let me do one of those prestigious ones like Chicago or New York or something. And that would be a great badge to have. Sure. He talks me into it and he said, hey, you're, uh, you're better off um, doing a triathlon so that you would start loving one sport out of three. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, I'm preparing for it. Why don't you and I do it together and we sign up? So January 1st, 2019 is when I signed up for the race without even knowing what goes into that race. And uh, the race was uh, 19th October. So a little, little over nine months to prepare. And this is when I was 39 and I did not know how to swim. 
<laughs> you didn't so, know how to swim? I didn't know how to swim. So this was, <laughs> you know, call me crazy. That's why I said I do crazy things. Yes. And this was a, this was a swim in the open uh, bay water right next to the ocean. So we're, we're talking about ocean side swimming. Uh, and I haven't, I didn't swim in a pool as well. So that was the first thing. Oh. First, first action was to take swim lessons. And I would, uh, you know, like you correctly pointed, it's uh, it's more mental than physical, right? So I I was, every time I was uh, looking myself through that finish line, whenever I would go in that pool, I would just imagine that what would I feel once I walk out of that pool or once I walk out of that swim and run through the chute and I would finish my swim times. So it it's a, it's a really interesting way of training myself and it was mainly training my my mind but I was very disciplined in in getting to the point to the pool every 4 30 in the morning uh, getting myself uh, enough practice I was traveling quite a bit and uh, I would make it a point that I would find a pool everywhere I go um, practice all the time and then obviously my goal was not to uh, have a competing standpoint but I, I wanted to complete the race sure. so which I did uh, back in 19 and then in 20 I did one uh, obviously 20 was washed out so we did virtual and then in 22 which is last year I, I finished a third one as well I did three half Ironmans uh, but awesome. that was still uh, crazy on my part to finish all that well I also think you know from a you know, listener standpoint, like listen to what he said in terms of imagine and see yourself finishing. Like that's what helps you get through the training. And, you know, early in the conversation, you, you said you were forward thinking and you were looking to, you know, get the passive income that met your, you know, your monthly needs. So you could, you know, not have to work in a day-to-day job. And I think that visualization, that imagining that, you know, that's a, a skill, that's a habit that, you know, if you want to be successful, yeah, there's risk in doing it. You know, yeah, there's, you know, challenges, but you're, the fact that you're visualizing the end in mind, you know, is, is huge. And I think that that also differentiates a lot of times the, the syndicator from, the passive investor, the passive investor has excess capital. They want to park it someplace and they want to get a return on it. And the syndicator may look at that property and see, look, when this thing is all done, it's going to look like this, you know, and it's going to be generating this type of income and these types of returns. And they can visualize it maybe more than, than somebody else. But, um, so if somebody wants to reach out and get to know you, get to know the company better, what's the best way for them to do that? Perfect. We got a few ways to do that. Obviously, uh, we can reach out to our website, you know, exponential-equity.com, right? And uh, that's, uh, and, you know, I've, in addition to all the unique things that I'm doing, my name is also quite unique. So if you put first and last name, I'm 100% sure that I'm the only guy in the world with that first and last well, name. Well, you know what? So say the the name of the website and, and your full name again, because... Um, exponential equity does have a hyphen in between the two words. So you've got to make sure that you include that exponential hyphen equity.com. And then it's Yomesh Deliwala, D-E-L-I-W-A-L-A. Um, last question I kind of have is like, where do you guys go from here? I mean, you guys have already accomplished so, so much in a short period of time. Like where do What's kind of the longer term stretch goal for you guys? Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, uh, our, our mindset, at least uh, between Hamel and I, we, we talk through this, right? And, uh, you know, he, he kind of brings in uh, some of that uh, uh, imagination and the creative side of it. And he, he uh, his, uh, and I concur with him. That's why I'm quoting him right here is, uh, we just want to understand the potential of ours, right? As a human being, what can we do, right? So we have several plans uh, in play. Uh, we are, you know, enhancing the lives of our, uh, not only our, the, the, the team that we are working with, but also uh, the families that we're touching. So we have some plans in terms of, 
you know, creating a giving arm of it, you know, creating a fitness arm of it for our own team, for our own families. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it is the potential, what what we can do, right? A human potential to to venture out and um, to uh, to contribute in, in various different ways. And we just want to understand what our potential is. I love How that because, you know what, in the beginning, I think people get into real estate investing and it, and it is about, let me create enough passive income to meet my lifestyle. And then it becomes, you know, hey, other people start coming to you and asking you, well, how'd you do it? And you start, you know, educating other people and you start, you know, helping people grow their wealth by bringing them into different deals. And then, you know, it gets to the point where like, it's not about the money as much anymore as it's about the impact. And so I, I love that you guys have that, um, you know, thinking both about the potential of what each of you can contribute and how you, each of you can grow, you know, as people and also as business leaders. Absolutely. So with that, um, Yomesh, I really appreciate you coming on listeners. I hope that you enjoyed that one until next week. Signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.